Join me in a word of prayer. Well, dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would just quieten our hearts now. We pray, Lord, that you would give us calm hearts, clear minds. Father, we do ask that you would speak, for we are listening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, are you confident that you're saved? Are you Confident that you will spend eternity with Jesus? Are you confident that you know the truth about God? Because, of course, if you answered yes to those questions, if there's one thing that gets up the noses of our world, it would be someone like you. Someone like you. People are not going to applaud your quiet trust in Jesus or the Bible. I'll just see arrogance and presumption. You just broke the unwritten rule that says that you must start any sentence about God uh, with something like, you know, I've come to think of God as, or everyone's view is valid, or we mustn't be too sure about such things, but dot, dot, dot. Even some, quest uh, some churches question whether we can or should be confident, saying that it's a sin to presume on God and uh, to say that we're sure of going to heaven. But according to the Apostle John, there is something wrong if a Christian is not sure. There's something wrong. Confidence is in fact the mark of a Christian. God wants us to know for sure. He wants us to know for sure about him about eternal life. Verse 13, for example, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know. Confidence is the ultimate reason that John wrote this letter that we've been reading this past term. Now, when John speaks like this, He's looking back over the whole letter at a whole lot of kind of certainties that he has talked about through the course of the letter. So we've seen things like reliable revelation uh, about Jesus from eyewitnesses. We've seen effective atonement that brings sure forgiveness. We've seen the firm identity of Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. We've seen the sure victory over the evil one and over his world. We've seen the assurance that love and obedience brings, the anointing of the Spirit that enables us to discern truth from error, in particular the error of the Antichrist, the false teachers. Or put simply, God's love. That's been a big thing. I just love chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. 
if you haven't worked it out already, 1 John is a tangle of all those kinds of themes. It's like cooked spaghetti on a plate, right? A, a pile of steaming hot spaghetti, maybe a little bit of oil, ready to add the sauce, add the cheese. If you're coming from an Eastern culture, think a big bowl of noodles ready to add the other ingredients. Various themes wind their way through the book of 1 John in what looks like a tangled mess. Ideas kind of weaving in and out. But all John's spaghetti strands of thought find their way into this chapter. And so reading chapter 5 is a great way to sum up the whole book, a great way to grow in confidence. And that's going to be good for us uh, whether we have confidence and want to grow in it or whether we know we're just not there yet and we're curious how we could. God not only wants us to be saved, he wants us to know that we are saved. He doesn't want us to go through life wondering, fretting, sweating. I write so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, how can we have this confidence? There's two things here. Number one, we have sure victory. Victory. You've heard of Nike shoes. Do you know what the word Nike means? Nike or Nike is the Greek word for victory. In myth, uh, Nike was a Greek goddess of victory. Now, the logo looks like a kind of a tick to the right, doesn't it? Um, but actually, it also looks like the Greek letter for N pushed on its side. That's where it comes from. This word, Nike, is used just once in the New Testament. Just once, because the New Testament's written in Greek. And it's used right here in verse 4. This is the victory, the Nike that has overcome the world, even our faith. So this climatic chapter of the book starts with a bang. Christians have the Nike. But it is a victory, is it through our strengths, through our intelligence? Is it through our good looking, our good living, I meant to say, definitely not good looking. Um, is it through our strong faith? Well, no, that would be arrogance, wouldn't it? That would be presumption if we're relying on anything about ourselves. It's not about us. It's not about us or our faith. It's about who our faith is in. Not because of faith's strength, but because of faith's object. So verse 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. Or verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The object of our faith is Jesus. And one of the spaghetti strands that's kind of come through the book is the identity of Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is equal with the Father, that to know the Father, you've got to know Jesus, that he is the Son of God. Next to that, another spaghetti strand that's come through is the theme of the world, people who are opposed to God under the control of the devil, where false teaching, where false living thrive. And here, these two spaghetti strands come together and Jesus, 
His strand wins the Nike, wins that victory. Jesus is stronger. And if you're on his side, then the victory is yours too. If you've been born into his family, born again into his family, then you're on the winning team. Now, apparently, there's some soccer tournament happening at the moment in Qatar. And each game that Australia won, we said stuff like, we won, right? Until eventually we had to say, we lost. But we weren't even there, right? We didn't train. We didn't travel. We didn't lift a finger. Well, maybe just to adjust the remote, you know, the volume or the, the channel. But their victories are our victories because we are Australians. And so it is that Jesus' resurrection victory is ours. His triumph over hell is ours. We have overcome the world. And so, in result, confidence. Confidence is no sin. It would be actually wrong to be less than assured of our Nike because well, really, to, to doubt that victory is to doubt Jesus. And by the way, notice how you express your confidence here. So verse 2 says, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and by carrying out his commands. All right, We love other believers, we love God, we, we obey God. We're so thankful for our victor and all that he has done for us. How could we not turn around and live for him? We just do it because in him we have the Nike. It had to be said, didn't it? Maybe that's bringing morning tea for you, you know, coming along here on a Sunday and providing for others. We just do it. Maybe it's ringing up someone missing from your growth group. We just do it paying our taxes to provide roads and hospitals and schools to bless our community. We just do it. Watching our neighbour's house while they're on holidays. We just do it. And so we have confidence in Christ's victory. Well, secondly, we can have confidence because we have sure evidence. Sure evidence. This is another one of John's spaghetti strands. He began the letter reassuring us that he is an eyewitness to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and therefore we can trust his word. But here he actually steps it up a notch. So verse 9, he says, We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which is given about his son. We have God's testimony. Nothing could be more certain than that. We have all the evidence and proof that we need about his son. But what's he talking about here? What does he mean by this? Well, verse 6 explains. We need to read on from there. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Well, that cleared it up for you, didn't it? In a way, it should, though, because the Old Testament says 
that a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And John says, well, hey, how about the spirit, the water and the blood? One, two, three witnesses to the true identity of Jesus. And remember that there were false teachers floating around in these churches that he's writing to. They were denying the true identity of Jesus, saying he's not truly human, saying he's not spirit-filled, saying he's not truly God. They're teaching this half-baked Jesus. And to that, John says, rubbish. Rubbish. Think of the waters of Jesus' baptism. What happened? There was a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. Is he the son of God? Yes. What else happened? Well, the spirit came down in the form of a dove on Jesus. Is he spirit-filled? Yes. And what about the blood? Well, I think that's talking about the blood that flowed from the veins of the eternal God become man, fixing up our sin problem. There is nothing half-baked about Jesus. The spirit, the water, the blood, they give us confidence. They give us proof. And reject that evidence and you're making God out to be a liar. But if you do want it clearer than that, it doesn't come clearer than verse 11. Verses 11 and 12. Man, if you get nothing out of this whole series in 1 John, just remember these verses. They are brilliant. Memorize them. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You might have seen the T-shirts from this verse. N-O Jesus, N-O life. K-N-O-W Jesus, K-N-O-W life. God has poured out the very lifeblood of his Son so that these words can be true. For you and for me. We've got to take this to heart. We've got to take this to heart. I mean, hell is a living graveyard. It's not a party with your friends. It's a living graveyard. And by rights, we've all earned a ticket there with no pass outs, no exits. But if you put your trust in God's eternal son, you're granted a free ticket to a living celebration. He who has the Son has life. Or as Jesus put it, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Trust in Jesus. You can have this confidence. You can know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know for sure. Now that's wonderful news. How can we want anything more than that? Well, this chapter keeps on giving and uh, as the chapter closes, John lists three benefits of this confidence, three benefits that we can enjoy right now. Number one is confident prayer. Confident prayer. We haven't accessed all areas past to approach God, right? To pray and to expect answers. Again, not because we're deserving, but because our Lord is Deserving, he's opened the way. So from verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he 
hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, of course, this verse has been abused at times by those who kind of do the name it and claim it thing, who say that if you believe hard enough, then God will answer your prayer. But there's a key phrase we must not miss here. And that's the words, according to his will. Right? We don't know if it's God's will to get a job or a marriage partner or healing from sickness or whatever it is. We're invited to pray. We're encouraged to pray. But with a degree of humility, saying, not by will, yours be done. Remember, John was there in the garden hearing Jesus say those very words. We let God be God and decide. But he loves to give good gifts to his children, doesn't he? And um, often he does answer those prayers. Dear God, please give us a good lead pastor. And he's answered. How brilliant. But there are cases where we know God's will because it's clearly revealed in Scripture. And we can be a whole lot more confident. We can name it and claim it. Right? Dear God, I want to grow in my love for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, it's a command of Scripture, isn't it? And the Spirit would be delighted to be at work in us, helping us to grow in that area. Or actually, you just read on here, and uh, John gives us an example himself of prayer in the following verses. And this is actually the second benefit of confidence. Um, confident ministry. Confident ministry. So verse 16. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. What these verses are talking about is the kind of the one-off sin of a Christian person the kind of thing John talked about in chapter 1, we all sin from time to time. And so if, say, a Christian sister comes to you, distraught, repentant, talks her sin over with you, wants to know if God can forgive her, well, you could read, for example, 1 John 2, verse 1 to her. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right? You know from the word of God that a sin can be forgiven because of Jesus, the righteous. You pray for her, she's forgiven. God hears your prayer on her behalf. Whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. You've ministered the gospel to her in that most profound and loving way with confidence of God's positive answer. Now, John is quick to pick up the exception here, the sin that leads to death. Right? He doesn't say to pray about that. Now, that would, I think, have to be the sin of the false teachers, the sin that refuses Jesus, that denies the real Jesus, that refuses to come to him, for life, right? If someone's heart is clearly unrepentant, they're not seeking Jesus, they don't want his forgiveness, they don't expect your prayer 
for their forgiveness to be answered in that case. I'm not saying that you should pray about that, says John. Simply pray and beg that they, they would change their heart. It's on them. Pray and beg that they would change their heart. So you've got confident prayer. There's one benefit. Confident ministry. There's another. The third is this confidence in Jesus. Because just the chapter closes out with this beautiful picture of uh, God's um, Christ's care and protection, his power, his truth, his divinity. So, for example, verse 18, the one who is born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. Verse 19, we are children of God. Verse 20, we may know him who is true. And the climax, I think, Jesus Christ he is the true God and eternal life. Now, yes, it's possible that that last sentence there, when it says he is the true God that it's referring to, earlier in the verse, God the Father, it's possible. But I think unlikely. I think it's referring to Jesus. He is being called eternal life earlier on by John. You think of the start of John's gospel where he says Jesus is the word and the word is God. God, I don't think it's any surprise that he ends his letter with this affirmation of Jesus' divinity. Here is our confidence. We are kept by God, adopted as his children, because he has the divine power to do that. He's God. And we know him who is true. So encouraging. We're his. The evil one cannot harm us. We are his. Now think of all the risks that MBM has faced over the last year or so. There could have been discouragement, disunity, scandal, loss of vision. There could have been all kinds of issues confront us as a church. But Jesus has clearly been caring for us, showing his protection, showing his leadership, his power, looking after us, his children. We're so thankful for that as he's protected and looked over us, showing his love and his divine power. We can be confident in Jesus. Well, let's wrap this up. All, right? All these spaghetti strands kind of find their way into this chapter, this last chapter of the letter. And John has driven home his point so that we would rest secure in Jesus. We would rest secure in him. But he can't resist one last word. And it's a surprising word. It's an evocative, a stirring word of warning. Verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from think, where did that come from? He hasn't mentioned idols the whole way through the letter. I think it's genius, though. I think it's genius because he gets us thinking about idolatry. And idolatry gets a very, very bad rap in the Bible. Um, I think he's using that bad reputation to deliver to us a final kind of a knockout blow. To refuse... The message of this letter would be idolatry. Idolatry. 
to accept the false teachers, to accept their half-baked Jesus, to live for the world, to disobey, that would be to commit the sin that leads to death. That would be nothing short of idolatry, to have the wrong God that you're worshipping. And God hates golden calves. He hates Baal worship. John is saying, MBM, take this letter seriously. So what are you going to take away from 1 John? Your choice is actually really stark, according to John. Believe in the true Jesus or die in your idolatry. There's the choice. Verse 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Is spiritual confidence arrogant, presumptuous? If it were self-confidence in our achievements, in our religious life, in our prayers, in our love, then yes, it would be arrogant. If it's God-confidence, well, it's a different story, isn't it? God-confidence where we admit that we deserve nothing, where we rest in Jesus through faith, accepting the good gift that he is giving us, then confidence is the mark of the Christian. For I write that you may know that you have eternal life. If you don't have this confidence, get it. Get it. Enjoy the Nike Jesus one for you. Enjoy the evidence for Jesus. Grow in your ministry of confident prayer. Rest in the powerful Jesus. Be confident in John's words and put them into practice. Just do it. Just do it. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious God, we're reminded this morning of your care. And that only comes because of the power and the divinity of the Lord Jesus power of him dying and rising for us, the truth that we cling to. Father God, please give us hearts to rest in Jesus and so gain confidence. Not a confidence in ourselves, a confidence in him that humbles us, that in fact strengthens us as we walk through life recognising we live under your care. We say thank you. In Jesus' name.